0: The Millennium Tower is the tallest residential building in San Francisco. Uh, It's a condominium skyscraper. It um, it has won numerous awards upon its construction. It's where rich and famous people go uh, to be residents. It was completed in 2009, and it's 58 stories and 645 feet height of it was completed at a cost of $350 million, but not long after people began moving in, they noticed something was wrong. And then they were told the main tower was sinking. By 2018, the sinking had increased to 18 inches And it was now leaning at 14 inches. What they were told is that the foundation had been built into deep, dense sand, but not bedrock. And then came the cracking. The cracking of glass that uh, was rated to withstand hurricane force winds. Well, by then, the blame game was in full force in the city. The homeowners association sued the main contractor and the developer, and the developer then blamed the powers authority, and I mean, lawsuits were piling up. By 2020, July of 2020, the cost of the proposed fix was now $100 million, all because they built on sand, not on bedrock at the end of Jesus Sermon on the Mount Jesus makes the point that whatever you build your life on is going to be put to the test and its foundation will be exposed he said those who hear my words And they put them into practice. They are like a wise man who built his house on rock. And then he said, you know, uh, when the storms of life pound in and power up against it, it will stand. But the ones who hear my words but don't put them into practice, they're like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the same storms put it to the same test, it comes down with a great crash. The wise builders house put to the same test as the foolish builders house and yet instead of a great crash is making a great stand the words of Jesus and you know what Jesus is talking about worldview he's talking about your foundation for how you do life what you choose to build your life on the foundation that you trust, the viewpoints that you hold, the framework that you build, the stories that you tell to help you make sense out of life, the values and the truths that you hold on to and that you align your behaviors to, that's what we've been calling worldview. Your worldview, your framework for living, it matters. How you think matters, how you look at life matters, how you live your life matters. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is all about that. But so is Genesis. The early chapters of Genesis that we've been looking at are essentially telling us you become like what you believe. Is this true? People become like what they believe. Your life takes on the shape of your commitments. Like right now, we're all, probably everybody listening in is seated in some kind of a chair, If you're in one of our campuses today, God bless you. Thank you for coming. Maybe it's your first time back. We're so excited to welcome you. But if you're at home, you may be sitting in an easy chair or on a couch. You know, you're kind of laid back. But whatever chair you are committing yourself to, that you are setting your weight down in, is giving definition to the shape of your life right now. Is that true? A slanted posture with lowered hips or sitting up straight with feet on the floor Your commitment to your seat is giving your body its shape right now. Well, in a similar way, you become like what you commit your life to in your beliefs, in your behaviors. And that's what the early stories of Genesis are showing us. But they're also asking us this Do you know the path you're on? Inviting us to think about it. Do you know where it's leading? Do you like what you see? Do you see what you're becoming, the shape your life is taking? And that was our series, Becoming and the Self-Made Myth. And so we identified and then we defined several worldview options. And those are all like chairs in the showroom of life that are all inviting us to come on in, take a seat, and let it give shape to the way you do your life. Why do worldviews matter? Because every one of them are inviting you in to ask you to take a seat, settle in, and swallow what you're being fed so that your life behavior might be aligned to their view of truth. Why do worldviews matter? Well, I'm about to share a hard truth. Some may not like it, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Just like Adam and Eve, you can be deceived. You can be hoodwinked. You can think you're doing one thing and actually be led into another. And misled to your own destruction. That's the first story we read in Genesis 3. We all can. You can, I can. We all can. And here's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. Now you've heard of the road less traveled. This is the road most traveled. That's what Jesus said. This is a very popular road. Tons of people are on it. Um, And it is populated with lots of differing worldview options. Our new series we're calling "Busting." Busting. Now, we're still early in Genesis, and we're still pulling the curtain back on worldviews, but now we're doing it with an eye toward busting out of the self-made myth and then busting in to a God-graced life. So if you want to say something with me, I'm going to say that again, and you can say it if you want to, because this is really where it's taking us now. We're busting out of the self-made myth, and we're busting in to the God-graced life. Genesis 11 and 12. Bring us to that crossroad. There's a fork in the road. We've been in Genesis 1 through 11. Now we're moving into 11 and 12. And the the story of the Tower of Babel is Genesis chapter 11. That's where the human builders are declaring their worldview intention. Here's what's giving definition to the way they live. Chapter 11, verse 3. Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. So that we may make a name for ourselves. We're going to build our own stairway to heaven. Thank you, Led Zeppelin. We're going to get ourselves out of reach of another flood down there below. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to make our name great. Now, the worldview in play... This is the worldview in place since the first human sin in the Garden of Eden. The human race on the wide road that leads to destruction. Now, you may not believe that, but this is what he's trying to say. Open your eyes here. It's like the wisdom of Solomon tells us, Proverbs fourteen twelve. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. And so that's the same story we're going to see unpacked throughout the entire Bible. And now we've seen it in the last nine chapters. Genesis chapter 3 through 11, the story of Cain who murdered his brother Abel, the story of death having its way in 10 generations of the cycle of Adam's descendants, the story of wickedness then metastasizing like cancer across culture in Noah's day until the flood comes, remember the stories, and then this story, the story of humans trying to make a name for themselves and building their own stairway to heaven, reaching the heavens without God. That's significant because the worldview that is operational on the wide road is this one, the one traveled by most people. Try to make your life great without God. Now, this may surprise you, but do you know what shows up in Genesis chapter 12? The other option, (laughs) the other worldview. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. Look at this. God speaks to a man named Abram, and he wants to take him on a journey. He doesn't tell him where, he just invites him to come, come with me, and uh, join my journey. And he makes him this promise. Look at this promise. This is amazing. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will what? Make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And it gets better. Look at this. I will bless those who bless you. I will, whoever curses you, I'll return it right back to them. And all the peoples on earth, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You know what that is? That's a worldview. The whole world is going to be blessed by you, but it's the narrow road. This is the same kind of blessing that. Um, that Enoch and Noah experienced, and now Abram is being invited to make a channel of blessing into the whole world from his life. What's the narrow worldview? Here it is. Trust God to make your life great with blessing. Trust God to make your life great with blessing. Somebody needs to wrap your heart around that (laughs) because that's what God, God has been up to and wants to make work in our world. So what Jesus told us is that the narrow road, like we just saw it, isn't as popular, and it's not as traveled as the wide road, but it is full of promise, and it leads to life. Isn't it something that what God's image bearers long for, even in rebellion, even in rebellion against God, is being part of something great, something that causes their lives to feel like they're building with greatness. Well, look at this. This is what God longs to give. Chapter 12. But it can't be experienced without God. And it's the same choice of the Garden of Eden, only now writ large in culture. Here are the two choices. Try to make your life great without God, or trust God to make your life great with blessing. Jesus said, you know, there are two roads in life. The same roads that we were introduced to in Genesis. And it sounds so clear and simple, doesn't it? You know, the trust God to make your life great, but in a fallen world uh, that is diametrically opposed where culture says, no, we'll do it without God, it's not that easy. What I mean is sometimes it feels like nobody's going with God. It feels like everybody's doing it the wide way, right? And if so many people are doing it that way, and so few people are doing it this way, then the narrow road, surely the wide road must be the right way. And and the wide road, I mean, after all, it is the most traveled. They got that one right. Most traveled in history. Yep. And they're claiming to be right. And... Sometimes it sure feels right and looks right to me. You ever feel like that? Have you lived long enough to realize that just because somebody claims to be more right, using words that may even sound right to you, doesn't mean and doesn't make it right? Even words like justice and equality. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Don't jump to conclusions here. Just hear me out for a minute. The temptation that the serpent used in the Garden of Eden, we're going right back there now for a moment, is laced with themes of justice and equality. Did you know this? Check me on it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. God knows, this is the tempter talking, When you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be what? Like God. I mean, their action is going to establish a missing equality in their experience. It's going to equalize things with God. You're going to be like God. And that's going to set things right. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't want that? You know, why shouldn't you have that kind of equality? And then there's also embedded in it this temptation: the thought that God is holding out on you. You ever had a thought like that? Like, God's keeping me from something that I that I really want. Something that. Uh, that I should have, something that I could benefit from. And how is that fair? That thought kind of comes in there, doesn't it? That's just not fair. And if God is holding out on me and God's not being fair, then suddenly God is unjust. It's a justice issue. So it's see where it's going. It's equality and justice. This is highly sophisticated seduction. Verse 1, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? It's like all these trees, are you telling me all these trees are here, and God tells you, now don't eat any. Now, that's not what God said, but that's what the tempter says. The tempter is planting suspicion around the issues we just talked about, and and the fact is now that God doesn't want you to have a tree, why not? I mean, why can't you have any tree? Why can't you have every tree? That's just not fair. That's not right. This is diabolical. And you know, here's the thing about human beings. This is my observation. I don't know if you agree. If you want to get us to do wrong, it helps if you make us feel like doing it is going to make something right. This worldview is very much in play today. It's called moralism. Moralism. Making judgments about others' morality, and it usually comes across like this. My right, what I, my right, is more right than yours, which is why yours is wrong. Here's how the Oxford Dictionary defines moralism. It says, civilized life is impossible without morality, but moralism unreasonably inflates its importance and claims it should override any conflicting consideration. It started as a secular philosophy in the 19th century. And its goal was to bring society morals without religion. And at first it centered around traditional behaviors, but then it started to include issues around justice, equality, and freedom, but always in a non-religious way. Christian morality, on the other hand, flows from a grace relationship of faith with God out of love. This is Jesus' teaching that we do what's right because we love God. We love God and we do what's right out of a desire to honor him and to love others as ourselves. Moralism is more like the legalism that Paul warns about in his letter to the Galatians. And in preparing this talk, I think I've seen this in our society around a whole lot of issues for a very long time. Whatever your politics, whatever your topic, Be sure, and and watch this for yourself, and then you, you make your own judgment, but be sure that you couch that issue, whatever it is, claiming the highest moral ground possible. And then at the same time, be sure and paint your opponent as immoral, unfair, unjust, and not right. I'm not making a political statement. Don't judge, don't, don't jump to conclusions here. I'm explaining how moralism leads to judgmentalism and then brings divisiveness and then brings destruction. And I'm telling you, the devil's been doing this for a very long time. It's right there in the earliest chapters of Genesis. And even Paul says it this way 2 Corinthians eleven four, 4, New Living Translation. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no wonder that the servants, his servants, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. This is very diabolical, very hypocritical. But they claim to be right even when they're doing wrong. Now, rationalize is a word that we use in our culture to talk about that, sometimes used for that. Pastor Rick Warren says that to rationalize is to tell yourself rational lies. And it's what's happening right here. You know, secularism is another worldview. Secularism is morality without God. Morality without faith. And its behavior fits the definition of moralism because it blames religion for what's gone wrong in the world. Have you heard this anywhere? Oppressing women, racial discrimination, war, bigotry. I mean, the list goes on. R- religion becomes a scapegoat for what's wrong in the world. And so secularism says you want to well, get rid of what's gone wrong in the world? Get rid of religion. It's a worldview of secularism. Let me invite you, some of you, into a memory space for just a moment. You recognize these words? Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try no hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. You know what worldview that represents that we've studied already? Naturalism. Naturalism. The material world is all there is. Next verse. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and No religion, too. You know what worldview that represents? Secularism. Morality without God, the one we are just talking about. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Secularism worldview. Next verse. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You know what worldview that is? Humanism without God. Chorus, you may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. And I hope someday you'll join us. Okay, time out. He said, would you just take a seat right here in our worldview chair, settle in, Say it our way. I hope one day you'll join us. Align your thinking and living to, and the world will be as one. It's a worldview song. John Lennon, I think it, I, I like the song. It's a cool melody. John Lennon's murder was a twisted and horrible thing. It never should have happened. But his killer, you know what his killer said motivated him in the Newsweek magazine article? Why did you do it? He felt like John Lennon was a a betrayer. He had been betrayed because Lennon was a big phony, a big hypocrite, and Newsweek quoted him saying this. He told us to imagine no possessions, and there he was, millions of dollars, yachts, farms, country estates, laughing at people like me who had believed the lies. Close quote. Julian Lennon, John's son, from a broken marriage, a broken home. Some of us don't have to imagine what that feels like. This is what Julian said. You know, dad could talk about peace and love out loud to the world, but he could never show it to the people who supposedly meant the most to him. His wife and his son. Close quote. Now, I enjoy the Beatles. I've got all their songs. And so I'm not saying this to diss John Lennon. All I'm saying is that people are conflicted, two of them at least, in his life are conflicted about him because what he said did not align with what he did. And yet, that song has been treated like a secular hymn in our culture. About embracing worldviews, at least three of them, without God. Sometimes when you're on the narrow road, it looks like there are so many options available on the wide road. What am I missing out on? But I hope you're seeing in the series, and if you weren't present for the first one, I hope you'll. Check it out and and allow it to, to stimulate some thinking. But here's what the scripture is showing us, that every new worldview that rises in human culture actually is more like same song, next verse. Same song, next verse. Same song, next verse. More sophisticated temptation, more deceptive destruction, but same song, next verse. Every new way that presents itself in history is like, hey, how can we build one more level floor on the Tower of Babel and that will eventually show itself to be a false gospel. That means it promises to be a way, but doesn't lead to the way out. I hope the challenge of this message isn't causing you to shut down I would really rather it stimulate and provoke some conversation and some thinking, because all that Genesis is teaching us and all that Jesus is trying to tell us in Matthew 7 is this, it basically comes down to two, when you get right down to it in life, there are really two roads that you can follow. You can try to make your name great without God by any number of worldviews that present themselves, and sometimes in very cool musical style. Or you can trust God to make your life great with blessing. The narrow road. And on the narrow road, you walk with God, you talk with God, you find and follow Christ as God. And as he leads you to the way, he is the way. Or on the wide road, it can feel like you're in charge. And you're calling the shots and you're making your own decisions as you go. Only And and it feels pretty good for a while. Here's Here's what Scripture says. Sin is pleasurable for a season. But then it's like time's up. Payday comes. It doesn't last. And when payday comes, the wages of sin is death. And on the narrow road, that's the wide road. It says to destruction and death. But the narrow road, on the narrow road, God gets to be God. And God's posture toward you as a faithful follower is to grace you with blessing and favor. And now, I'm telling you, you're going to find that his timing will not match your timing. And his ideas will not always match your ideas. And he's going to be inviting you to understand things like this, you know, uh, my ways are not your ways. You know, when he tells you that, what he's trying to do, he's trying to help you bust out of what is holding you back, that other alternative view that's got you trapped. And he'll hit it hard to get you out. (laughs) And then he'll say something like, bust you out of your pride. That thinks, oh, I got this. No, you don't. As the heavens are higher than the earth, God's thoughts are higher than your thoughts. What does that mean? That means God's going to bust you out of your pride to bust you out of this earthboundness and transform your life to get you to another elevation to think on a higher plane by the renewing of your mind. So the journey for Abram began with a decision to trust God's word and accept God's invitation to join the journey, the journey of promise. And you can do that today too. Did God make Abram's name great? Well, I'll tell you this. History says that his name, his name is revered in three great monotheistic faiths of the entire world. But did God bless, that's the question, did God bless all the world through him? Well, you know how Matthew begins his gospel? First verse in the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament, here's what he says. This is the genealogy of Jesus, taking us on another one of those cemetery tours. But he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Through Abram, God, came into our world through Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Messiah, so that everyone could be blessed by him. And if you ask him to save you, whatever fiery furnace you find yourself in, you turn your heart full toward him, then he will meet you there and bring you with him to the other side with fullness of salvation, which is a gift, you don't earn it, forgiveness of sin, which is a gift, you just receive it, the presence of his Holy Spirit that comes alive in you and starts lifting you to a higher plane, and then the assurance of eternal life, no matter what, collapses and goes down in this world. Security, that's what salvation means. You will be safe with him, which then just brings us to this question. Why would anybody want to settle for a self-made life when you can have a God-graced life that is promised to be great and full of promise. Pray with me. Lord, <laughs> I did, I sure didn't get this until you opened my eyes. So I pray today that as we are listening in that you will and and then opening our bibles or opening our minds or opening our hearts that Holy Spirit, would you illumine us? Would you open our eyes to see how good you are? and how you desire greatness for us and how how far we will always fall short if we try to do it by ourselves without you our lives are scarred by so many attempts at that already our relationships our business relationships our our world is scarred with war and and so much more but we thank you that you can enter into the holy place in us that you created just for yourself, and you can take the throne, and you can implement. The the government will be upon your shoulders there, and you can be the Prince of Peace. I pray that for somebody right now. Brother, sister, believer, would you allow the gracious living God of promise to once again take the throne of your heart and your mind and lead you to the narrow way farther in, higher up? And then friend, maybe you're checking us out today and you've been religious but it hasn't satisfied or you've been churched but it just isn't working or maybe you've just floated in online and yet you sense that God is, something is tugging you, something is, is prompting you. Would you just lean into it right now? Lord God, if this is you, I don't wanna miss your call. I'm not gonna put you on hold today. I hear you and I'm open to you. Lead me. I turn from my way, my sin, and I turn to you. Forgive me, fill me, and by grace I receive in faith the gift you promised. And then hold on to this truth. Whoever has the son has life. God made that promise for you. Right now, you can say, thank you, Lord. If you prayed that with me, you can say, thank you, Lord, that you heard my prayer and that you are now alive in me. Lead me that I can grow as I make my prayer in your name. Amen.